they use this term neurotypical for people who don't have autism, right? Or, or um, neurological disorders, not just autism. But I don't like that term because I think as one of my guest lecturers likes to point out, we do a lot of the same things that the autistics do. So I don't know why you're drawing a distinction from us. <laughs> I mean, he says, you just have to look a little closer. We do exactly the same things. I was brainstorming and researching. And honestly, the best way I found to solve it was just by talking to the people who the problem is happening to and asking them what they think. So I think it kind of taught me that it's really important when you're working with a certain population to ask them what they need and listen to what they say. Welcome to the Nashman Hive, a podcast with George Washington University's Honey W. Nashman Center for Civic Engagement and Public Service. Here, we tell stories about transformational campus community partnerships. I'm Jordana, your Community Engaged Scholarship Coordinator. You just heard there a clip from Dr. Sean Cleary and public health graduate student Carly Cox speaking about the course, The Autism Experience, A Public Health Perspective, which is one of the Nashman Center's long-standing community-engaged courses. Dr. Cleary has a multi-year connection with Our Stomping Ground, a nonprofit recently renamed from City Center Nova, which supports people with autism in accessing inclusive, affordable, independent housing in Northern Virginia. In Dr. Cleary's class, students learn directly from people with autism, form friendships, and break through assumptions about what it means to truly provide equitable access to education, housing, and healthcare. I had the opportunity to speak with not only Dr. Cleary and Carly Cox, but also Donna Budway, a director at Our Stomping Ground. They all go in depth on the many ways they navigate this class collaboration, and their stories include everything from listening actively, to going on hikes, to allowing space for stereotypes about people with autism to change. There's so many lessons to be gained from this experience. Let's take a listen. Hi, Donna. It's so great to be here with you this morning. Hi, it's great to be here. I'm really excited to hear more about your work with City Center Nova. Um, but maybe before we get into that, it'd be great to just hear a little bit about you um, and what your personal kind of professional background is. Right, perfect. I actually have a background in nutrition and public health, but we have three children and our youngest child was diagnosed with autism um, pretty young. She was about 20 months old. And so it quickly became apparent that it would be difficult for me to be working outside the home. So I kind of became the navigator for the healthcare system and um, education and everything we needed to do kind of for our family to survive and get through that diagnosis. So I have been doing ad autism advocacy um, and she has a seizure disorder, is non-speaking. She's now a speller. She spells to communicate, but I've kind of been um, doing that work then for the last 20 years. And that's how I came to City Center Nova because so many of us, you know, one of our biggest concerns is what is going to happen to our children, anyone in the disability community after, you know, after we die, after we leave this earth and coming up with these long-term solutions. So as our um, child exited the school system and you kind of then it's now what's next, what are you going to do? And there has been um, a movement. There's a great community actually here in the DC area, Main Street um, in Rockville, Maryland. And we were watching them with great interest. And then a, gr a group of really innovative, hardworking, caring parents on the other side of the bridge in Virginia decided that maybe we should need to jump into the housing um, 
housing work as well. And that's how I found them, City Center Nova, and that's how I get involved. Mm, okay. And so so this all comes from this personal place. I didn't realize that. Um, so and you'll find a lot of people in this work are, are yeah. you know, find researchers, doctors. Um, it's 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 great because it brings a great energy to um, to your nine to five job. I'd love to hear more about how how this relationship with students at GW works. Like, how did it how did it start, and um, and how's that relationship kind of grown? You well, first of all, you have an amazing um, faculty, and just so many. We have been so blown away by the students that we have interacted with, and the students that have chosen to intern, and a lot of those students have stayed in our lives and are still in the area or in grad school or, or reaching out to us. But they have been really dynamic relationships. First of all, I should say, if you are a, a non-speaking autistic. Um, most of our friends um, have not actually had any real meaningful integrated um, educational experience up to this point. Like they were um, put a, put in, um, they're more isolated. They weren't integrated in their, um, they weren't included into the regular school day. So some of our, they were, you know, in a classroom for autistics or in my daughter's case, if you don't have a meaningful way to communicate and you're loud and disruptive, um, you're not only isolated from the general population and um, not able to get access to the curriculum, but you're in a room with a bunch of people like you who are also dysregulated and screaming and, and doing whatever they need to do. So not much has happened. So the fact that there's this amazing course now at George Washington University that's going on, it's coming to an end um, this semester um, for, for the year. Dr. Cleary teaches it. It's um, a class, I wish I knew the exact name. Um, it's kind of the lived experience of autism and an amazing group of, um, usually we would come onto campus and um, be in the classroom. Usually it's, it's undergraduates and graduate students and they are learning. They're all in the health field. Um, we've had like someone in uh, neurology, uh, a dentist, um, pediatric nurses, occupational therapists, speech therapists, just this amazing group of students who no matter what they do after this, their lives are forever changed by that semester where they sat in a classroom next to these non-speaking autistic students where they would all learn about autism together. You would have um, an anthropologist, um, Dr. Greg Wallace, um, Dr. Grinker of your staff, just amazing, amazing professors who are doing research in the field and are teaching their own, um, their own classes and doing their own work, but are coming in and sharing with this group of students. So we have the neurotypical students, the GW students sitting in this classroom pre-COVID. Now we're all on Zoom, of course. And usually there's about, um, I would say eight to 10 autistic students in the room and they're all spelling to communicate. So it's actually working very well with Zoom because we don't have to worry about interfering noises or behaviors. A, a student who has autism can turn off the camera, they can turn um, off the sound and have the full immersive experience because just because they don't look like they are attending to the lecture doesn't mean they're not and they're not learning. So they're getting access to college level curriculum that they deeply care about and learning. And then the GW students are learning about what it's like, you know, so there will be a talk about nutrition and challenges of being autistic and, um, Greg Wallace gave an amazing for the last couple of years has given an amazing lecture, but then after the lecture, then the autistic students can say, yeah, I've got this challenge. I have trouble eating these foods or 
um, you know, I can't get myself to do this or I'm not exercising enough. So then the students, the GW students get not only what they've learned and what they've had you know, the lesson of the day, the research, but then they actually have autistics telling them, yeah, this is my experience. This is how it feels. And it's, you know, there's nothing like it. And then for our friends, we've had a couple of our uh, GW students that have gone on to medical school and they've told us there's nothing, they will never approach an autistic student, an autistic patient in the ER or in their clinic the same ever again. And, and pre-COVID, it was an amazing experience because we would also meet once a week, maybe after class, we would walk over to South Block at um, the student union and the GW students would join us. So we would have an hour of just interacting. And, you know, we had a yoga class. Um, Dr. Linda Campanelli taught for the GW students and the autistic students down in the, um, in the, in the public health building. And it's just been an amazing experience. It's been an amazing experience for these autistics who have never had anything like this in their life. And, and I like to think that it's also changing the perspectives of the future leaders in the um, public health community as well, our GW students. And they have been amazing. We have, and, and then they have the opportunity um, through the Nashman um, to Foundation for them to be interns for your public health and service um, goals that you have at the university, which we applaud. Um, we have um, this semester, we have three of your students. One of them is a graduate student, so she actually doesn't have that requirement, but she's actually involved with our, um, with our discussion with the social justice group. So she's reading the book. It's um, The Warmth of Other Sons, an amazing book by Isabel um, Wilkerson. And she's getting on every week with the Zoom class and discussing. So she wants to go to medical school. This isn't, you know, what she needs to do to go to medical school, medical school, but it is what she needs to do to be a better human being and to be a better doctor down the road. And, um, you know, we've got students, GW students helping us, you know, with things with the website or um, developing curriculum. We've had them write articles before for our website. It's just been, and, you know, we don't have that bandwidth really. We need our GW students to help us um, with these projects. And so it's been really exciting. So your students get this great experience, um, hopefully or get excited about issues they've maybe never thought about in, in housing and um, the disability community. So I, I, we like to think it's a win-win, but we have been so impressed with the students you have sent us. I mean, and they really are um, long-term relationships. We had to do interviews for um, Dr. Clary's class like mid-semester and I was so nervous and I was like, oh my gosh, I need to plan out like a script exactly what I'm gonna say. And then I started to do the interview with the student and conversation just flowed. Like it was just like, just like talking to like a friend. Just because they have autism doesn't mean they don't want connection. That is a, a false assumption that the general population makes about people with autism. They don't want the social connection. And I can tell you, and you will see, <laughs> I can't tell you. Here's the part of why I do this class. I can't tell you, I can tell you this, right? Yeah. You're not gonna believe it until you see it. Sure. And, um, and I, I hear that from the students because they do personal reflections every week. I hear that from the students. Yeah. Like, wow, you know, this is not what I was expecting they are not who I was expecting, you know? They're articulate. They don't give you one word answers. They ask phenomenal questions. Um, they are intelligent. And there are just these, you know, sort of pervasive stereotypes of people with autism that they're, they, you know, have no 
they have a low IQ. Mm. Well, in fact, I will tell you, actually, all of their IQs are 70 because they can't pass the damn IQ test. Mm. Their IQ is not 70. The test is failing them. <laughs> you know, come up with a test that they can take where they can actually show their true IQ. When you meet them, you see that they don't have an IQ of 70. I mean, they're on level with my college students. And that's, you know, why exposure to them is so beneficial. Before I came to the class, I thought of autism as like a behavioral issue. And then we learned that it's actually a physical, like a motor. And that was really interesting to me. And it's so funny because, I mean, I'm getting my master's in public health and I'm just learning this. So, I mean, you think about how much of the public doesn't know this and are seeing things and thinking, oh, well, if they just try harder, then they could do this. But really, it's like a physical problem. Our model is to take a, a unit of affordable housing, which usually means families, and then we are moving our friends with disabilities into those um, set-aside units. So the building, our first building in Arlington, is called Gilliam Place. There's 173 units. Eight of them are set-asides for the disability community. Um, so we instantly have a community. But then, as anything in housing in the disability community, now that you have housing, now we got to figure out, you know, how do we make their lives rich? How do we make community? How do we um, roll this forward and, and repeat it again and again? And that's the exciting thing because we do, um, things are happening pretty quickly. Um, this first unit, our, our friends moved in last December. So we're celebrating our year anniversary um, with a great nonprofit, um, APA and Arlington, um, Arlington Partnership for Affordable Housing. They're amazing, amazing partners. And um, they are opening another building in also in Arlington, more in the Roslyn area. And then we have um, a building coming up in the next two years. By the end of two years, we will have five properties. Wow. And each property will have between eight and 12 buildings. So it's, it's happening um, very quickly for a new nonprofit with very limited funding. Hmm. So this is really amazing. I feel like um, I've never heard of anything like this before. Um, and I'm just thinking for you, especially as a parent, um, it's like you're paving your own way for yourself and for right. your family. No, I know it's a very selfish work endeavor because um, my daughter is actually one of the um, tenants in the building. She was one of the eight to move in. And we'd already been kind of exploring that. But, you know, with all this hesitancy, because, you know, you just our daughter happens to be non-speaking. I mentioned she spells to communicate. She has not um acquired a lot of the ADLs, what we called activities of daily living. So she um, needs a fair amount of support. And really, especially historically in this country, when we look at a lot of different groups that are at risk, um, we have treated housing more as a destination and it's predicated on a person's um, individual readiness to move in. So if you're um, if you have a mental health issue, you need to have your meds straightened out. You need to be stable. If you're unemployed, you need to get a job. If um, you have an addiction issue, you need to get sober. So we've always in the past, we've always thought, get all of that fixed and then we'll get you housing. And the new model really is that we get someone housing and then we figure everything out, that that is the most stabilizing factor in a person's life. But I think it was good too, that we were virtual because a lot of the students were non-speaking, but 
they spoke in the chat and it kind of put everybody on the same playing field. What, what could you share with people to just kind of on a basic level, you know, help them understand what autism is, you know, something they should know that they might not know? I think probably, and you know, the, the science is changing and evolving and a lot because of like classes, like the one you're teaching at George Washington University um, is that, you know, we always thought it was this, this person who was isolated, who didn't have any need or want for social interaction, right? You know, that, I mean, you know, even my daughter at, uh, so now it's only been 20 years ago, her pediatrician told us that she would probably be institutionalized in her lifetime. You know, I mean, that was just what we thought, you know, most autistics end up speaking. I think our, our neurologist at Johns Hopkins at the time told us that about 90% of all autistics will speak by the age of 10. Our daughter didn't start speaking till, um, probably kind of really speaking till like 12, 13. And then she started spelling later in life. So you're, the experts aren't able to give you a lot of the, inf you know, they didn't know, we didn't know, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we thought autism was caused by the mother or refrigerator mother. So, and, and treatments and what we do, it's evolving very quickly. And we're already talking about all the things we did for interventions for our children, you know, when they were five that have already, we're questioning now. So you're, you're kind of at a loss. You need to build community. And if there's anything I could tell any parent with a child with a disability, whether it's autism or whatever it is, is you have to build community immediately. You will not get through this. This is not easy. This is very expensive. I mean, the cost to families, the facts that um, a lot of families who can afford to do it or can't afford to do it need to have one parent leave the workforce. If you're able to remain in the workforce, you're not completely available to the workforce. Um, these children have um, can deal with issues of self-harm and um, there can be, I mean, there were times at the beginning of our journey that the house was filled with screams for like eight hours a day. A lot of these, a lot of our friends don't sleep very well and, and, and it all gets better and, um, if you, you know, there's interventions that you can do. It's a lot of time. It's really, I think the main thing, if you, if we would educate these students, just because the child does not look that they can be educated, doesn't mean they should be locked. I mean, I think of all the time we wasted um, for our daughter, where she could have been learning or growing or developing skills. So basically she didn't really develop any self-help skills nor did she really get an education. And so when she started to spell and we recognized that there was more there, you know, she was already, you know, we'd already wasted a lot of time. And so we're doing a lot of catch up now and you can catch up, but to a family with a new diagnosis, just always assume competence, read to your child. If it sounds like, looks like your child doesn't want to be read to, keep reading, let the child run around the room. Like we really kind of shut that down for our child. That just did not seem like she was engaging with us. We loved her, we kept her safe, we kept her active, um, but we, we did kind of stop reading to her and we quit pushing the schools to teach her the way that she should have been taught. So I think the most important thing for every family um, with a child with a disability, especially if they are not speaking, 
is that not to assume that they're not verbal, that language isn't there, that um, to accept that, to understand that we now know that language is a motor issue and it does not mean that there is no cognition. I mean, Stephen Hawking's is a perfect example. And, and I heard a father say once in a meeting that if Stephen Hawking's came to your meeting and he hadn't already figured out, you know, the meaning of the world, world and the black hole, um, nobody would have looked at him and thought he was genius in the room. So to just be reminded of that every time you see a person with a disability, we do not know what gifts, what talents, what potential that child has. And I shudder, I still feel a little overwhelmed by the fact that I didn't see it early enough in my own child. And so if we can encourage other families to from the moment of diagnosis before, just love your child, read to your child, do not limit your child with any limitation that any person may give you for that diagnosis. Because the future is bright. It is exciting. I mean, we really do see, I mean, I even think of Temple Grandin, probably the most famous autistic person in the world. Um, when I first heard her speak um, on NPR, probably early in my daughter's diagnosis, she was she was kind of difficult to listen to on a radio interview. But now when I've seen her live and, you know, she's actually as part of um, the GW project had actually did an interview with our students, our autistic students, even in, in the 20 years that my daughter has been living with autism, Temple Grandin, who has a PhD and who lectures, she is a better communicator. She is more empathetic she is more able to look at other people's perspective. And so if you see someone who is, who has accomplished everything she has accomplished, still getting better, like all of us, the potential for all of us to learn new things, to approach the world differently, to see someone different as our neighbor, to work collaboratively with different groups. I mean, we have the potential to learn and grow throughout our lives. And that is something that George Washington is giving, the university is giving us this opportunity, this partnership to do, to learn. And so really, I do think for, for you to open your doors, to let these students come in and, and have this experience, what they maybe never could have had in their lifetime is, I mean, I can't, I can't express how grateful we are to the Nashman Institute. I'm sorry, I'm so emotional about this, but it's it's an emotional thing for our families and we are just so grateful for the work and you could have you know, chosen to put your foundation money anywhere and to decide that this was a project that you deemed um, suitable funding. We are just so grateful and excited and the opportunity we have to move this forward and to be a model for the country is very exciting. We are very, very grateful for this partnership. People go into this field I see this as workforce development. I want all of my students, and it has happened, a few of the people that are going into medical school said, I'm more aware of this now, and I will try to you know, be more aware of this when I'm a practicing physician. Um, because you don't get training in medical school on that. You know? And there are very few physicians that actually interact with autistics, and even fewer um, with adults with autism. You know, I told you, this is funded by um, a grant out of Children's National Hospital mm -hmm. and an Autism Institute, but they stopped treating people after the age of 18. So, so one of the parts of it, the end part of it, the final stage is sustainability. Mm. And so, you know, I want to make sure that whatever I'm working on in this environment with this group, because they're so um, enthusiastic about it, and there needs to be more focus on this is that it's sustainable. And that's what I'm trying to do with this current project is do it better.
I mean, to really do it. Um, and as I said, I wake up in the middle of the night scratching my head. Now that I scratched off all the hair. Um, what the hell am I doing? And how am I going to really do this? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and part of me is just frightened by the, you know, I don't want to fail. I don't want to let them down. Um, but you know what? I also wake up saying, we're going to figure this out. You know, we've got to figure this out. It's in everyone's best interest that we figure this out. Are there other ways that um, folks can like support you or find out more about you? How would people do that? Absolutely. Go to our website and um, you can get a student membership. So you can get everything that's going on. It's cheap. I think it's $20. And um, just follow us, like follow us on Instagram, follow us on Facebook. Um, and just, you know, we have a lot of activities that are, everything is free and open to the public. And right now we're all virtual, but certainly for a hike or a walk, if you follow us online, then, um, you'll know what we're doing. You'll know where to join us, where to make friends. And then of course, sign up for Dr. Cleary's class next year. This is not happening anywhere in the world. What you students are doing here in this classroom on this campus is is groundbreaking, completely groundbreaking. I mean, right? To go to the people, if you want to learn about anything, right? Bring the people, um, bring the experts, and they are the lived experience of autism. My conversation with Donna was really touching. I'll be honest, I may have shed a tear or two. It just really reminded me that community engagement, whether you're a doctor or an artist, should always be a collaborative practice and listening, really listening to the people who are affected by an issue is the most important step. Thanks so much for listening to the Nashman Hyde podcast. For more information on our center and our partnerships, check out serve.gwu.edu.